The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Keeve Nachman. He is director of the Center for a Livable Futures Food, Production, and Public Health Program at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He is also on the faculty of the Departments of Environmental Health Sciences and Health Policy and Management. Dr. Nachman investigates the public health and environmental impacts of industrial agriculture with particular interest in livestock and poultry production. His research program focuses on the human health risks posed by drugs in food animals. His publications include studies of antibiotic use in food animals and the development of antibiotic resistance, the use of arsenic-based drugs in poultry production, and environmental health policy and decision-making. Previously, Dr. Nachman was an environmental health scientist and risk assessor with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. His doctoral work at the Bloomberg School focused on human health risks associated with arsenic and poultry waste. Dr. Nachman, welcome. Thank you for having me, Linda. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you've done such wonderful research that I think impacts so much of our health, and I don't think we realize the far-reaching impacts that our food production systems have on public health and rural communities. Tell me a little bit about how you became interested in this field of work. Sure. It wasn't a a direct path at all. So I trained in the risk sciences. I was interested in learning more about how when people are exposed to chemicals, how it might impact their health. And I developed these tools and I had some chemicals I was interested in looking at. So I, I had a fascination with heavy metals. Uh, arsenic in particular, and what really led me into the world of industrial agriculture was arsenic. So I was attending seminars in graduate school and learning from folks who ended up being here at the Johns Hopkins Center for Liftable Future. They had a, a longer-standing interest and in, uh, greater expertise in issues related to industrial animal production, and I was completely new to that. So while I was busy thinking about where my buffalo wings came from, they were <laughs> going a whole lot further investigating uh, what it means to produce animals industrially. So anyway, I attended a seminar uh, that had a a brief aside uh, that mentioned that arsenic was used in the production of of broiler poultry or or poultry that are raised for meat consumption. And I was shocked. I knew quite a bit about arsenic. At that point in time, the literature was already fairly sophisticated in terms of documenting the relationship between being exposed to arsenic and a whole host of adverse health outcomes like cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. And I, I was blown away. And so I thought, well, this might be a great area of focus where I can take the tools that I've developed here in graduate school and apply them to a thesis project that might have a real human health impact. Right. Well, let's go down the path of arsenic then, because I know there have been some wonderful Consumer Reports articles about arsenic and how it persists in our environment and the different places where it is used. So it's my understanding as a dietitian and one who has to translate some of this research to consumers in terms of what are the best purchases to make in the supermarket, that arsenic has been used in poultry production to increase growth as well as to improve the color of the meat. Is that correct? 
Yes. So it's approved for a whole host of different purposes. I think initially it was believed that certain arsenic-based drugs were effective at, at treating certain parasitic infections. But I guess it was determined that it also had the side benefit of promoting growth, so making the birds grow faster or allowing them to grow more per kilogram of feed that they're given. And it did have a pigmentation effect as well. The evidence base for it being effective in those regards isn't the strongest. Uh, I mean, these drugs were first approved in the 1940s, and the studies that were available then to support those claims were probably not as strong as studies that would be needed to support claims today. But, uh, yeah, that was the purpose. And the arsenic then stays in the poultry waste, and then that poultry waste is applied to food crops, and then, of course, those crops take the arsenic up. And then we, as the end consumer, consume the arsenic, and I'm assuming it also gets into our water. Yeah, so the majority of, of the arsenic that is in the drug that's given to the chickens ends up in the poultry manure. And then we we have such a huge industry that we generate lots and lots of manure. And going back centuries, we amend agricultural fields with manure from, from animal operations. And so that manure carries with it the residues of the drug that's been fed to the birds. And what's interesting, not to dive too deeply into the technical details, we give the birds a drug in a particular chemical form that for the longest time was believed to be not a problem for people. So if you were to ingest arsenic in this particular form, we used to think it didn't matter. It wouldn't make you sick. And so that was a lot of the basis for why it was okay to use the drug. But what some research in the last two decades has shown is that the arsenic is converted from that form that we believe not to be a problem into forms that we do believe are problematic from a human health perspective. And then there's concern related to, you know, people might come into contact with the arsenic, either through managing poultry manure or through uh, consuming crops that may have accumulated arsenic from the manure. Or, and, and this is, I think, what really drove my interest in, in arsenic and poultry uh, initially, is that when we apply lots and lots of poultry waste to land, what happens is it doesn't stay put. So you have weather events like a heavy rainfall, and what can happen is that the arsenic becomes mobile. And so it can run off horizontally and it can get into surface waters. But there's also concern that the arsenic can move downward or leach. And that's really problematic in places where you have a groundwater aquifer that's used as a source of drinking water for people in private wells. And so if you're dealing with a groundwater aquifer that's fairly shallow, there is a real potential for the arsenic that resides in poultry manure to contaminate it and, and thus get into people's drinking water and, and make them sick. Is there a map of the United States which shows which areas are more likely to have arsenic contamination in their water supplies? So the USGS has done some fairly detailed sampling of, of uh, groundwater all across the country, and so they have documented certain parts of the country where there are higher levels of arsenic in the water. And then there are certain food crops that seem to pose a greater risk. So the ones that I have on my list are rice, chicken, and some of the fruit juices, like apple juice. I think those are the ones that have gotten the most attention, and I think of those, uh, rice is really the poster child for arsenic accumulation and arsenic in the food system. Mm -hmm. So rice is very, very effective at pulling arsenic. 
So my question about rice in terms of making consumer recommendations, you know, being a dietitian, I'm always so very much fiber conscious, and I always recommend brown rice because we want that fibrous hull on there. And then also parts of the country that might have higher levels of arsenic. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but unfortunately, the brown rice seems to have a greater concentration of the arsenic. And it also seems that rice grown in on the West Coast has less arsenic contamination than that grown in the Southeast. Yep, those are both generally true. Rice is tricky for a lot of reasons, you know, as compared to something like chicken, not to, to drive the conversation there. But in the case of chicken, the source of arsenic in the meat is something that is within control of producers, right? So you can choose to use the drug or not. Right. And by not using the drug, you mitigate the exposure or, or significantly lessen the exposure and, and everyone's happy. Rice is a whole lot harder because the sources of arsenic that find their way into rice are not easily controlled. We're dealing with possibly uh, contamination that originates from natural geologic sources or residual contamination from human activities quite some time ago, like the use of, of arsenic-based pesticides, or in some cases, the application of poultry litter to fields where rice is grown. So it, it's a little bit trickier to control the different sources, and without doing some testing of the patties where the rice is being grown, it's difficult to know whether you have a contamination issue at all. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, things are even more challenging for the consumer, right? Because mm -hmm. you go to the grocery store and, and you may have read Consumer Reports' story, which is very helpful and gives good guidance about trying to avoid arsenic and rice. But ultimately, it's difficult basing your judgment on package labels and a little bit of knowledge we have that's generalizable about rice it's difficult to avoid exposure. So you're correct in saying that, that often within the same uh, variety of rice that brown rice will have the higher levels of arsenic. And the reason for that is that white rice is, is polished. So the outer layers are removed. So many white rices start as brown rice. And, and in terms of arsenic, the arsenic likes to accumulate in the outer layers of the bran. So if you're polishing the bran, you're going to lose a lot of the arsenic. So that's why the white rice will be lower in arsenic. That is really unfortunate for a lot of the reasons you described. And, you know, personally, I'm a fan of brown rice much more than white rice, and I, I prefer it. Me too. Um, yeah. Well, rice is also tricky for a lot of other reasons. So rice is, is a dietary staple for a lot of people. And as I'm sure you're well aware, people who might be gluten intolerant might have certain conditions where they, they have limited choices in terms of what they're able to eat. Rice is an extremely important staple, and there may not be many alternatives. So, so there are certain subpopulations who are heavily reliant on rice. And then there's the, the cultural dimension, too. There are people of certain cultures that, that are heavily dependent on rice and may eat it a couple times a day. It may be such a huge part of, of the cooking. And as a result, they may, you know, depending on where their rice comes from and, and whether or not they're sourcing rice that, that's contaminated with lots of arsenic, they may be at risk of greater exposure. Right. So dealing with it and advising folks on, on what to do can be tricky because you have to navigate those challenges. I mean, the, the benefits, you know, rice, as a dietitian, you probably know a whole lot more about this than I do, but there are certain nutritional benefits that come with consumption of rice. And it's difficult to advise, you know, don't eat rice. That's not, I wouldn't say that's the solution, but making good recommendations to folks about how to deal with the arsenic issue when it comes to rice is a, a real challenge. And I think 
we haven't seen the FDA take a lot of, of action with rice thus far, with the exception of infant rice cereal. Very recently, they have released an action level for infant rice cereal that at least gives them something to work with in terms of trying to limit the levels of arsenic in the rice supply. But for the rest of us, you know, the recommendations typically are vary your diet. Yeah. And and for some people, that doesn't provide enough of a roadmap for feeling comfortable with the risk. Right. Now, arsenic stays in the environment. It's a persistent heavy metal. Is that correct? It's a heavy metal. It's, I mean, it's it's elemental, so it's it's not going to break down into something else. Right. And are there good water filters that can get it out? I know the President's Cancer Panel report, I was so shocked when it came out. It was back in 2010. They recommended that every American basically filter their water. And I'm assuming, you know, part of it is to remove some of the agricultural chemicals, but also the heavy metals. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it depends on where you live and where you get your water. So if you live in an urban area and you are on treated water, uh, you know, this has been a, a big issue recently, but when those treatment systems are functioning properly, which unfortunately always isn't the case, those treatment systems are designed to remove arsenic from the water. And there are uh, routine monitoring plans that track the levels of arsenic in water. In most urban areas, arsenic in water is is not an issue. Uh, In rural areas, though, the story can be very different. There are certain parts of the country where the levels of arsenic in groundwater used for drinking water can be quite high. And in places like that, it's important to test your water periodically to ensure that you have a treatment system on your well that is designed to deal with heavy metals. Mm-hmm. And for low-income rural communities, I know this has been a problem, say, on some of the Native American Indian reservations. I don't know that that level of monitoring and treatment is even available to those communities. Well, especially if they're on private wells. I mean, one thing to recognize is that private wells are not protected by the Safe Drinking Water Act. Mm. So really, you're dealing with state-level requirements for testing. And in many cases, those state-level requirements only provide for a a drinking water test or a well test uh, when there's a property transfer to ensure that the water is potable. And so if you've been living at a particular residence for a long time, you know, chances are no one's tested your well. Right. Well, we should probably leave the arsenic conversation on a happy note and that is that the FDA has indeed, as you reminded me, they have put in a regulation that the arsenic-containing drugs given to poultry have been banned, correct? Yes, it was very exciting for us. So for a long time, I'd focused on what happens with arsenic when poultry waste is managed. And I feel like I and others have made a lot of noise pushing for policies to uh, eliminate the use of the drug as a result of those risks, and and they fell on deaf ears because I think the affected population was rural and smaller in number. So I shifted my focus to look at what happens to the meat when these drugs are used, and I published a study in 2013 that showed that when these drugs were used, there was an increase in the level of toxic arsenic in chicken meat. Mm. And based on that and some other research that the FDA had done, they felt they had the evidence needed to withdraw the approvals of the drug so they could no longer be sold in the U.S. And so the first three of the four drugs were banned at the end of 2013, and the last one, called nitrozone, was just banned in December of 2015. So at least domestically, 
those drugs are no longer being used. And so that is a, a public health victory. Yes, and thank you so much for your efforts to do so. I should take one break just to remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Keeve Nachman, Director of the Center for Livable Futures Food Production and Public Health Program at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Well, Dr. Nachman, in addition to your work on arsenic, you also look at the impact of confined animal feeding operations on rural communities. And in particular, your focus is on antibiotic use. And I find it absolutely fascinating to hear in some of your lectures about how antibiotic resistance develops and how it spreads in rural communities. So there's that aspect of the industrial livestock production. And then, of course, there's also odor, and then there's regulation, and so many layers of complexity that rural communities have to struggle with. Why don't we start with antibiotic resistance and tell me a little bit about your interest in this area and where you think we're headed. Sure. Unfortunately, this one doesn't have quite as happy of an ending as the arsenic story, but we'll we'll tell the story anyway. So we in the U.S. have a voracious appetite for animal products, and that appetite over the last half century has really increased quite substantially. And in order to accommodate our appetite for animal products, we have had to ramp up production. So over those decades, you've seen an enormous explosion in the production of of poultry and swine and, to a lesser extent, beef. And in order to produce that many animals, we've had to change the look of animal production sites. So whereas when I started studying um, animal production, I kind of had this outdated bucolic image of a farmer hand-feeding his animals in in this beautiful pasture, (laughs) what I learned over time was that I had a, a really skewed perspective of where most of our animal products come from. And, and so what we've shifted towards are, uh, we, we've, we've had the number of farms uh, producing animals decline in number nearly exponentially. And, and what we've had at the same time is a rapid increase in the number of animals being produced at each farm. So farms are fewer in number, but they're much, much bigger. And what we're also doing within these industries is geographically concentrating them. So there are certain parts of the country that have enormous industries. So, you know, one example that that is kind of a local one here is the eastern shore of Maryland, Delaware, and Virginia is one of the largest poultry-producing regions in the country. North Carolina, as another example, is one of the largest swine-producing nexuses in, in the U.S. And so in those places, we have accumulated large numbers of those operations in close proximity to one another. We've also changed a lot about the way the operations are run. So in addition to having much larger and more crowded farms, we've started including, and when I say started, I'm really going back decades, but the practice of of using uh, antibiotics for a variety of purposes. So these operations are not the most hygienic places you can imagine when you're cramming thousands of animals into tight quarters and not cleaning them very often you have quite unhygienic conditions. And and so antibiotics were added into that system for a variety of purposes, but early on it was determined that antibiotics were effective at promoting growth and reducing the amount of feed that was needed to bring an animal to market weight. So from an economic perspective, there was a belief that they provided a financial benefit to the farmers that would add them. 
And so that practice continued on over the decades and became quite entrenched within the industry. And so if it were only providing an economic benefit and there were no public health ramifications associated with their use, you know, it would make more sense to me. But what happens is the following. So here's an important note before I dive in, is that we do not have a separate group of antibiotic classes that are animal-specific. For the most part, the antibiotics we use in animal production come from, they're either the same drugs that we would use to treat human infections, or they're from the same classes of drugs that we would use to treat human infections. And so what happens is that these drugs are given to animals. They're often given to animals at very low doses. They're not given at doses that would be high enough to treat an infection. They're given to animals for large spans of, of their lifetimes, often the entire life of the animal, save a couple days at the end to make sure that there aren't residues of the drugs that stay behind in the animal products. And they're not given in response to any particular disease or disease threat. So they're not targeted to treat a particular type of infection. And they're given not on an animal-per-animal animal basis, so it's not like you have a veterinarian coming into one of these operations and injecting a chicken with antibiotics. The majority of these drugs are administered to animals through their feed or through drinking water. About 95% of them come through one of those two mechanisms based on FDA data. So they're really not given in a targeted way. You know, we, we talk about antibiotic misuse in clinical medicine, and drastic measures have been taken to try and reduce those misuses. Um, but in animal agriculture, we'll, we're still using them in a way that is not altogether very responsible. And so what happens in administering antibiotics in this way is that we treat all the bacteria that are there, but what happens is the ones that are susceptible to those drugs die. But what is left behind are pathogenic organisms that are resistant to those drugs. And after the susceptible bacteria die off, the resistant ones can take advantage of the microbial ecosystem and reproduce. And what you're left with are bacteria that are resistant to drugs. And if we give multiple antibiotics at the same time, what we're doing, again, is, is selecting for the bacteria that can survive in the presence of those drugs. So we are generating highly resistant bacteria. And if these bacteria would stay on the farm, we'd be less concerned. But what quite a bit of scientific research has shown is that these bacteria are very capable of leaving the farm, and they do it in a variety of different ways. The one, the, the pathway that people think about the most is that they can leave with the animals when they go off to slaughter, and they can reside on the surface of animal products that you purchase from the grocery store. And if you make the mistake of cross-contaminating your cooking surfaces, or you're not very careful when you handle the meat, you can become infected with those bacteria. And if they're resistant, that's a big issue. And we can come back to what it means to have a resistant infection in a moment. But the pathways that I tend to worry a whole lot about are the ones that involve people who work in animal production operations yes. and people who live in communities surrounding these operations. So we all like to worry about ourselves and we like to worry about what we face in the grocery store. But we are getting off pretty easy compared to what workers and community residents face. So they are more highly exposed because the workers are in these production sites. They have a whole lot of contact with the animals, and they can 
be exposed to the bacteria within the, the production enclosures. And the people who live nearby are the ones who are in the pathways of the exhaust fans or who have to rely on water from groundwater sources that have been contaminated with animal waste and thus with resistant bacteria. And they don't have a lot of choice. You know, you and I, when we go to the store, we can choose not to eat meat. And that can reduce our risk. But But for folks who are dealing with resistant bacteria that may be available for exposure in, in their residential environment or, or work environment, they don't have a choice. Right. You know what's also interesting to me is the research that you presented at a conference in Wisconsin showing that these resistant bacteria can also travel on trucks on the highway. So if you're a car behind one of these trucks that are transporting these animals that come from these confined feeding operations, we then all become carriers. And when the workers enter community hospitals, they bring that bacteria with them, really putting a much larger area of people at risk. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I I think you've hit the nail on the head. There are so many different ways that we haven't even talked about yet that these bacteria can find their way to people. Uh, You know, we didn't talk about flies and other non-domesticated animals. Flies have a a residential radius of about a mile or two. So if you live within a mile of an operation that is misusing antibiotics and and they're they're generating antibiotic-resistant bacteria, it's possible for those bacteria to be carried on a fly, and that fly could then land on your picnic table or your front door you know, and, and you could become exposed to those bacteria as a result of that. So you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, animal transport trucks have been demonstrated to be a source of, of the spread of resistant bacteria into rural environments. So there are lots of ways these bugs get to people and potentially may cause infections. And here's why that matters. So no infection is a good thing, right? So you don't want to be infected with pathogenic microorganisms. But what happens is if you have an infection with a susceptible bug, you treat it with an antibiotic and the infection results and you're fine. And, and you know, the burden on you and on, on the, the medical system to resolve that infection is, is relatively minimal. What happens when you have an infection with, with bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics is if you try to treat that infection with those antibiotics, the infection won't respond. And in the time that it takes to find the right antibiotic to resolve the infection, the infection can worsen and you can get sicker and sicker. And so that means a couple of things. Uh, One, it's going to possibly result in a longer hospital stay and likely a more expensive one. And two, more drastic measures may be required, like surgery, to ultimately deal with the infection. So the longer-term outcomes of the infection could be worse. Well, Dr. Nachman, unfortunately our time is up but I would love to have you come back and talk a little bit more about the politics and what kind of policies we as citizens can work for together to change the way in which we produce our food and the cost, the true cost, of what this industrial, quote-unquote, cheap food production system is truly leaving our communities with and the burden and the exploitation that we face as a result. So I hope you'll consider doing that. 
I'd be happy to. Well, in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Keeve Nachman, Director of the Center for Livable Futures Food Production and Public Health Program at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Again, Dr. Nachman, thank you for being my guest, and we will provide a link to the Center for a Livable Future, and we'll have you back to talk about this very important issue. Terrific. Thanks so much for having me.